0: This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Glad to be with you this morning. You might remember this. Ten years ago, then Mayor Rahm Emanuel closed 50 Chicago public schools. It was the largest mass closure in the nation's history, and many teachers, parents, and students protested that decision.
1: It's not about how many schools we have in the city, it's about whether to ensure that every school is a high quality school, regardless of where a child lives. I'm
0: back! cry is, no matter what, you can't have these schools. WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times have spent months looking back to that time a decade ago. How did the closings affect the city, its school system, students and their families? And have city and school district officials kept the promises they made? We are joined now by the team behind a brand new series, WBEZ education reporter Sarah Karp, Sun-Times investigative reporter Lauren Fitzpatrick, Sun-Times education reporter Nader Issa, and Kate Grossman, who's WBEZ's senior editor for education. Thank you all so much for being here in studio with us.
2: Thank you for having Thanks. us. Thank you.
0: And we want to hear from you, too. Tell us, what do you remember about that time, those school closings, Ten years ago, were you a student then? Maybe you were a parent or a teacher at one of those shuttered schools. Call us at 866-915-WBEZ. Again, join the conversation at 866-915-WBEZ. I'll start with you, Kate. You know, you've spent months, as I mentioned, on this project. Most of you actually were there back then covering these school closings. So take us back to that time for the new folks like me, right? Who I mean, this was before my Chicago time. What was the atmosphere like back then?
3: Um, Very, very emotional, very tense. Yeah. Um, You know, this the the closing, which is actually the anniversary, is today. It was May twenty second, twenty thirteen, and this had come, you know, which we'll talk about after this eight month long process of public hearings and protests and debate and commissions and all kinds of. Teeth gnashing and upset and rage. Um, so it all c- culminated, you know, in this, in the boardroom. It's a different boardroom than we have currently. And it's sort of in a, I think it was in a basement. It, it was high up, but it felt like a basement because the ceiling was very low. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it felt like a basement. And um, so everyone's packed into this room. There's an overflow room for the folks obviously couldn't fit in there. Um, and just incredibly tense and very, very emotional.
0: Yeah, Lauren, what do you remember? The, the district held months of public hearings before members of the board cast their, their votes. School officials said that the meetings drew 20,000 people. Do you e- remember that? Easily thousands of people.
4: And the meetings had started out in the community. So um, they tended to be in evenings. They were on Saturdays. So families turned out. Schools turned out. Kids wrote letters. Kids made signs. Children cried. Um, people showed up to represent uh, the good things going
0: on in their schools in these efforts to keep them off the closing list. Hmm. Sarah, I was reading some of the old articles that were written uh, back then about the closings. There seemed to me that there was some confusion back then about certain facts and figures that were presented uh, in the district's plan from uh, things like how many students would actually be affected by the closures to how the closure would, would actually help reduce the district's uh, shortfall, $1 billion shortfall at the time. What are the lingering questions that you all set to answer with the series?
2: Well, I think one of the questions that is really difficult to answer is whether the school district was able to s- save A billion dollars or save you know as much as they said and um, if not how much was actually saved you know when you look at the cost savings you're basically looking at what did you not spend that you would have spent but that's that's not always so clear so you know you're talking about okay this building needed a lot of repair and so by not doing those repairs you know you save that money. But then there's also a question, would you have done those repairs had the building been open? Mm. So there's a lot of those lingering questions. I, I think the, the bigger question is whether those savings were enough that it justified sort of the pain that unfolded in yeah. the aftermath.
0: Lots of lives changed at that time. A reminder, we want to hear from you as well, folks. Tell us what you remember about that time. The school closings were 10 years ago. Today, uh, were you a student, a parent, a teacher at one of the shuttered schools? Our number is 866-915-WBEZ. Nader, let's bring you in here. I want you to help us just visualize uh, this mass closing. Where are we talking about? Where were the 50 schools?
1: They were very concentrated in a couple parts of the city. On the southwest side, um, there were six schools that closed. On the north side, there were three the remaining 41 were either on the south, far south or west sides of the city and wow. anyone who knows um about how segregated Chicago is you know those are very majority black communities some majority latino communities but they certainly were concentrated.
0: Yeah, so those were the folks most affected. By the closings, for sure. And so for this series, you actually talk to a lot of people, right? You, you talked to former students. You talked to some current residents in those areas that Nader just talked about. Here is a little bit of what George Smith Jr. had to say about how the closure of his elementary school affected him when he was a student.
4: Got a lot of pride in that school. You know, a lot of memories, a lot of history. You know what I mean? To see it just go to be nothing now and to know what the kids had to go through to go to these different schools it's sad. It's heartbreaking, you know, but that's that's what they do to us, man. They they just displace us and they don't have no care about our neighborhood. You know, they don't care about us.
0: Sarah, this goes back to that disruption we were just talking about, right, uh, of students' education
2: and their lives right and you know george smith junior is actually 40 years old so he wasn't actually in the school when the when the school closed but he lives right across the street from um El- um from woods elementary and you know woods was one of the schools that closed and you know i think what he speaks to is this idea that like the kids in those schools were affected but also the communities that were left with these lingering buildings and also there's something um that's that a lot of people said, and that's you know you go back to elementary school yeah. there's something about you know you go and you say hi to that old teacher, oh yeah you you go and you look at you know, oh, this was my locker, this mm-hmm. was and you, you look at how small
0: it was and, and how small it was <laughs> right compared you to thought how di- huge you thought it was when you were right
2: a kid. oh it seemed like a million people were in the audience at the auditorium, but it was only like a hundred <laughs>
0: but... back to the auditorium and the gym right, mm-hmm. right,
2: because those were the places that you went all the time, and um for the people who went to these schools that eventually closed they don't have that they don't have that that connection back to to the community and you know a lot of people moved away after the schools closed so um you know, people are scattered, mm-hmm. so then it's not like you're going to see those people on the street, and you're not going to see those people by stopping by the school. So you just don't see those people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Ashawn Johnson was a third grader at the time. So here we actually have a, a former student. He became a prominent voice of kids whose lives were disrupted. He's uh, here's a clip of him talking back then at a Chicago Teachers Union protest against the school's closing back in 2013. <laughs> He was so fired up, Lauren. Yes. I mean, what was it like back then seeing just even the kids were fighting for their schools to be saved?
4: It was just heartbreaking. It was absolutely
0: heartbreaking. He said they don't care about these kids.
4: That was the sense that he had. He was not the only one um, who shared those kinds of feelings. You know, I remember at the community meetings that you had two minutes in which to say your piece to the Board of Education. And representatives were there recording it. And I remember one of them on the south side, one little girl, maybe sixth or seventh grade, stood up to make her speech that she had written out. And she started to cry because, of course, she did. And they cut her at the two-minute mark. So that kind of stuff was just really difficult to see. And then, you know, there was a, a mother that we've spoken to since who talked about these meetings where, like, kids should have been home doing homework. They should have been home having dinner with their parents. And instead, they were out in these auditoriums and gyms and churches.
3: Um, Dealing with very grown-up issues. Absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, one thing I about that, too, was that there was a very sort of clinical part on the CPS side. You know, of course, I can't imagine what it was like for them to sit there and have to absorb mm-hmm. all this stuff, but they sort of make a presenta- They made a presentation kind of laying out the arguments for these schools are under-enrolled, they're low-performing. You know, it's sort of the... the the dichotomy between the sort of intense like crying and emotion from the community and then the board that was sort of all about facts and figures and money. And this is, you know, the rational thing to do Mm -hmm. as opposed to what you were kind of getting from the kids was uh, pretty intense.
0: Well, we just heard from Ashan as a kid. Here he is now. He's a freshman in college and you talked to him. You asked him about that very speech that he made. Here's a little bit of what he had to say.
1: I just remember feeling feeling like this fire, more so like this anger just built, just built up. And I just had to, it felt like a release when I was able to like speak my mind because it felt for so long that I wasn't heard and that nobody was really listening.
0: So his school was one of four schools, Kate, um, that were spared at the last moment. But he said that he was very aware that many other students weren't as fortunate. What happened to students who did see their schools get closed?
3: Where'd they go? so c p s um called them welcoming schools these were fifty one designated schools that kids were supposed to go to and in the end, I think about eighty percent according to UFC study said that they that's what the UFC study said or anyway it doesn't matter um they a lot of the kids did go to the welcoming schools a lot of them didn't they chose or they they left they went for a time and then they moved on mm-hmm. but um they so they they designated these schools welcoming schools and they tried to invest in them 155 million dollars for air conditioning for some became stem schools some became uh you know fine arts schools um and we talk a lot in the series about you know this was really a facilities issue cps felt like they had too many seats and not enough kids yeah but they tried to sell it by making it really about school reform and saying that the kids would go to better schools that they would be better off. Um, and you know what we saw was that you know they were most of them were on paper marginally better, some of them actually not better, mm-hmm. but they might have had a slightly higher performance rating, which is a bunch of different variables. but they were most of them were sort of marginally if not if not really any better academically than the schools that closed.
0: Irene Robinson, uh, she remembers rallying with other families to keep their schools open. She was taking care of six grandkids who went to Overton Elementary on the South Side. I want to play a little bit of what she had to say about the families and how they were affected.
1: We was sisters, we mothers, and the fathers was out here, and the kids was out here, and we watched for the children who parents had to work, and they bring their kids here at seven in the morning. We was out here.
3: We was out here. It was family.
0: So Nader, tell us more about the communities and and just how they rallied around each other.
1: We talked a few moments ago about how these schools were concentrated in majority black areas of the city. Um, And uh, with uh, WBEZ's data master, uh, Alden Lowry, we dug into what exactly that meant for the communities where Uh the schools closed. Um, And to put this into some context, just how much segregation um, there is in these schools, 88% of the students who attended these 50 closed schools were black. They, at the time that year, made up about 40% of the students in CPS as a whole. So black students were very disproportionately affected by the closings. White students, in the meantime, made up less than a percent of the kids in the closed schools. Once you dig deeper into the community level, and that's that's what uh, Alden helps us with, Um, You find out that in the years before the closings, majority black communities were losing population at about the same rate. And that's something that's been well documented. There has been a loss of population in Chicago over the past 20 years. Mm -hmm. But then once you look after the closings, we specifically looked at census tracts with closed schools versus census tracts without closed schools. And the ones with closed schools lost about 9.2% of their population population in the five years after the closings, while black census tracts without closed schools lost only three-ish percent. Mm-hmm. And so, so people it, were still leaving. They, they were leaving and they left at higher rates yeah. from the communities that had closed schools. And you, of course, can't attribute the closings uh, or the population loss to any one thing in particular. But you obviously can tell from the data it didn't help. People were not looking to stick around in communities that didn't have a school.
0: For those just tuning in, you're listening to Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. This week marks 10 years since Chicago closed a record 50 Chicago public schools. There's a new series from WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times examining how the closings changed the city, its school system, students, and their families, and whether city and district leaders kept the promises that they made a decade ago. With us here in studio is the team behind that project. Reporters Sarah Karp, Nader Issa, and Lauren Fitzpatrick, along with editor Kate Grossman. Remember, we are also taking your calls at 866-915-WBEZ. How do you think that these school closures affected Chicago and affected those families? If you are a teacher, student, or parent at one of the schools, we would love to hear from you too. Again, eight six six nine one five. WBEZ. So we mentioned earlier, Kate, uh, then Mayor Rob Emanuel said that uh, the schools were closed because they were low performing and they were under enrolled and the buildings were just falling apart. How serious
3: were those issues? Um, Well, like I said before, I mean, the prompt was that these schools were under enrolled based on the capacity that CPS had set for those buildings. So that was the main reason. A lot of these schools had half or a little less than half of what the capacity of the building was. So there were, it became very clear during the reporting at that time that there were problems with the utilization formula so that schools were actually, you know, maybe they only had 300 kids, but they had a large uh, special ed population. Mm -hmm. And so they need smaller class sizes or they were using, they made a sensory room or they, they, they made use of the space in very productive ways that were great for the kids. Yeah even though on paper, you know, it looked like they were half empty. Um, but that was the primary reason. Um and then a lot of them were falling apart. They were, you know, they ended up picking in the end for the ones to close, the ones that were in pretty bad, like shape. Really bad shape. I mean, yeah. they weren't falling apart in the sense, but they're old buildings that, you know, like Sarah was talking about before, they had a lot of deferred maintenance. Um, you know, from Many decades, mm. um, and then they layered on in the end. Um, low performing because they wanted to. They started with the list. It was, I think, over three hundred yes. schools out of I don't know what there were six hundred and some odd schools mm-hmm. at the time. So about half uh. were on, on the initial closure consideration list. I see, and so they whittled and it, it went down. all the way down. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean,
0: Lauren Emmanuel, he inherited a lot of these issues that Kate is talking about. When he took office, right? He did.
4: Yeah, he did. In the decades before he took office, um, you had Mayor Daley, you had then CEO Arnie Duncan um, opening all kinds of new schools um, while enrollment was already starting to shrink a little bit. Um, by 1995, you have charter schools being allowed to open in Chicago. They do, they expand. Um, so, you know, the, the the shrinking enrollment was just becoming more and more diluted yeah. with all of this kind of competition. So um, Duncan and, and Daly did close some schools. I mean, closing in 2013 was hardly a new thing, but they definitely didn't keep up with the pace at which they were opening schools. Um, and, um, you know, when, when CEO Barbara Bird-Bennett, who was in charge at the closings, she came in and she talked about how just... Closing a few at a time was piecemeal. Was mm. caused chaos. It was more disruptive, and
0: she thought the better way to do it was just to rip the bandaid off all at once. Yeah. Speaking of um, then CPS CEO Bird Bennett, so e- Emanuel's appointed school board and her, they 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 needed to act. They agreed, and and so here's a bit of a CPS press release from back in that time, Sarah. It reads in part. Quote, CPS simply has too many schools and too few children. Today, CPS has space for over 500,000 students, but just over 400,000 are enrolled in our schools. This is stretching its resources much too thin. Yeah, so so tell us more about how city and school leaders were actually presenting this plan and and just really making their case.
2: Sure, and it's it's sort of like what what Kate was saying before. They put a lot of money, $155 million into these, you know, the the schools that were designated to take in kids from the closed schools. They, you know, bu- they bought an iPad for every child. They put air conditioners in, in every room. They, um, you know, they, they were providing extra staff um, safe passage, which we know today was one of the things that was born out of, um, you know, sort of that time or really expanded during that time. So they're saying like, okay, all the people who were worried about kids walking from, from one school to another, Mm -hmm. we're going to help them, you know, we're going to make sure that they're okay. Um, So they, they did try to say like, here, you're going to, your child was going to a broke down school, low performing school. Now they get to go to a school with all the bells and whistles. Mm
0: -hmm. But at the time, are community members feeling like their voices are being heard.
2: No. And, Mm -hmm. and the thing is too, you know, these are things. And what you heard a lot at these hearings is what was important to parents was relationships and the way their their school made them feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of people were like, I'm sending my child to this school. I went to this school. My sister went to this You know, there was a family yeah. thing, right? You know, this was like their family elementary school. And those are the things that, you know, you can't just buy. And that was, you know— that was one of the big disconnects.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, we should note Mayor Brandon Johnson was an organizer for the Chicago Teachers Union back then. What was the relationship between the CTU, Lauren, and, and and the district leaders? So when I stopped to think that all these
4: things happened in the same year, 50 closings, that school year started out with the teacher strike.
0: It did. It did. Mm-hmm.
4: So that relationship uh, between the mayor and the CTU definitely was not great. Um, you know, CEO Bird Bennett was, I think one of the reasons she got the promotion she did to be in charge of the schools is because she had a decent relationship with the CTU um, working through the strike. But, but so, so that's where the school year starts, like work stoppage, thousands of teachers in the streets, um, lots of anti-manual mm-hmm. signs and messages. And then the school year ends with, 50 schools disappearing.
0: Wow. Before we take a pause, folks, let's jump to the phone lines. We've got uh, Medina in Gresham calling. Hi, welcome to Reset. Yes. Good morning. Thanks for having my call. Sure. I'd just like to say that I've got a lot of friends who have children, grandchildren in those closed schools, and we've been talking over the past 10 years about how when the schools are closed, that, of course, increases a lot of young people who have no skills they haven't finished their education because a lot of them dropped out. We have a high dropout rate. And with that less education and those skills, that might not be the only cause, but it's a big determining factor in the rise in crimes. Mm. Thanks for your call, Medina.
2: And, you know, I, I want to say that I, I hear this a lot from people out that, you know, that I've interviewed that, you know, it's very hard to, to connect one dot to another, like, um, empirically like okay this is the school is closed and there's and therefore we see a lot of young people doing crime but there's definitely a sense in communities that that there's a connection um yeah she, she's the not two. alone in that thought. right I mean I, I I heard it from 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 many people who really know on the ground what's going on. So, you know, there, there's a lot of feeling about that.
0: Yeah. We're talking with Sarah Karp and Kate Grossman from WBEZ and Nader Issa and Lauren Fitzpatrick of the Chicago Sun-Times. They're sticking around to talk more about what's happened in the 10 years since Chicago closed 50 public schools. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. This week marks 10 years since Chicago closed 50 public schools. Now, before the break, we talked about why these schools were closed and the damage that it caused to the district, the neighborhoods, and CPS families. Now we'll dig into what happened to the buildings. Still with us is the team behind the new series, Looking into the mass closures, that's WBEZ education reporter Sarah Karp, Sun-Times investigative reporter Lauren Fitzpatrick, Sun-Times education reporter Nader Issa, and Kate Grossman, WBEZ's senior editor for education. And we're taking your calls at 866-915-WBEZ. Do you live near one of the closed schools? What happened to it? Tell us. And how has it affected your neighbourhood? Nader, I mean, the 50 school closures left behind 46 empty buildings. So let's start there. Uh, That's because four schools actually shared facilities. I know the team has visited every building to get this series out. So, I mean, what did you find? What stuck out to you?
1: There's a wide range of results when when you look at the, the closed buildings, when you walk by, you walk through these communities. I would say the biggest thing that has stuck with me since we started visiting them in October, sometime in the fall, Some of these buildings are just really vast, huge, beautiful buildings. I mean, there are there's a few that take up an entire city block. They're they're gorgeous Mm. buildings, architecture, all that. And walking around the neighborhood, you can't help but think, "What if I lived across the street? What if I lived in this home right here, Mm -hmm. and I had this beautiful school? There were every morning I'd wake up, I'd hear kids laughing." and playing, parents dropping their kids off, grandparents picking them up after school. And then all of a sudden, it's just all gone. Mm. And
0: There's nothing like that sound, by the way, right? Of the kids mm-hmm. playing in the playground midday. I, I love that.
1: Yeah. And, and some of these buildings that we reported in the series, some of them have been kept up. A lot of times, neighbors are sort of ch- chipping in to pick up trash, and um, there's one building we visited. These these uh, lovely gentlemen were sitting on a porch when we approached them, and they graduated from the school in the 70s and 80s, and mm-hmm. they still live there across the street. And one of them just said, this is our baby. Like the, we, we love this building. We Aww. remember walking the halls. We helped pick up trash. We put out a grill to grill for neighbors in the summer, put up a projector to watch sports games. And so it, then there's other buildings where the city, the new owner, whoever it is, just hasn't kept them up. You mm-hmm. see weeds growing um, knee, chest high. You see trash and litter all over. You see boarded up windows, um broken windows that right. haven't been boarded up. A
0: range here. A yeah. Difference. Uh, you talked to, to dozens of neighbors, including those those gentlemen you just talked about. Um, I want to play a little bit from Sherita Covington, though. Here's what she had to say about living near the former Ross Elementary in Washington Park.
2: It's a lot of work that needs to be done. Not just the schools. Centers, daycares. Look at that center, that church. It's it's like every corner, every block. You can go down. It's like literally five vacant buildings, four baking schools before you get to the expressway. Like, come on now.
0: So, Lauren, she's reiterating some of the frustration that Nader was just uh, talking about, right? Yeah. I mean, this is what people had warned Rahm Emanuel would happen, isn't
4: it? They had, absolutely. And for some of the reasons that Nader just laid out, that schools are very particular places. And the older ones were built to be gigantic. They had very specific purposes that are not easy to turn around into new purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, they were already in neighborhoods that were losing some population, that had seen a lot of disinvestment. Um, so they're they're kind of tricky to reimagine without a sense of um, imagination. And, you know, also like the schools had been, they had been these wonderful anchors in the community. This is the word that people used when they spoke out in support of their schools. Yeah. This is a community anchor, So not only was that good thing going away, but then it left a hole.
0: School officials promised all buildings would soon be repurposed after the schools were closed. What kind of plan did they propose exactly, Sarah, just so we're clear?
2: So what was supposed to happen (laughs) was that they were supposed to have the aldermen to hold community meetings, figure out what they want, and somehow that was going to turn into – what they wanted happening wasn't really clear how this was going to happen, but it was supposed to happen by 2015 when Mayor Rahm Emanuel was up for re-election. Mm-hmm. Now, handing the the process over to the aldermen was probably one of the first issues because aldermen are up for re-election. There's a lot of turnover they you know. So and and they're politicians, so they're trying to weigh a lot of interest, and they might you know they might be nervous to take a stand and say, okay, this is what a building might be. But then, you know, after that, there wasn't really much of an outline on how they would get it done. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you came up with a great idea, how do, you, how do you make that happen?
0: So today, only 20 buildings are back in use. Um, Kate, what happened to the 26 buildings that aren't being used right now?
3: So um, 16 of them are still owned by the city or CPS, and they're vacant. They just okay. sit there, um, the way we, you know, Nader described. They're just forlorn <laughs> grass hulks. growing up to your chest. Yeah, and I your mean, knees. some of them, some of the, the city does try to keep them up in terms of mowing the lawn, mowing the grass, and boarding up. Um, so you know, some are in better shape just in terms of upkeep, just the cosmetic yeah. part. But they're they're vacant, and so they're just sort of this hulking shadow, yeah. you know, lingering over the community.
0: Lauren, when was the last push to sell these buildings?
3: 2017.
0: Oh, wow.
4: 2017. <laughs> Six um, years ago. Yeah. And, you know, the the, the community-led process um, didn't pan out exactly. So um, Bird Bennett's successor, a very efficient gentleman named Forrest Claypool, came in and said, OK, let's just put them out to bid and see what we can sell. They did have some success in selling some of the buildings, um, and in finding interested buyers, I should say anyway. But mm-hmm. not all of those deals went through. And then I want to say too that um, when Mayor Lori Lightfoot took office in 2019, she just she put a pit, she put a pause on the whole process. So like nothing has been active since at least 2019. Wow, four mm-hmm. out of these ten years.
2: You can go on the website and see which buildings might be for sale if you're interested in a building, (laughs) by by the way. (laughs) Thanks, Sarah, for that plug.
0: Um, So I do want to point out there are some success stories, but they're rare. Uh, The old Mays Elementary School building in Inglewood has become an important hub for the neighborhood. Uh, Here's um, Brian Anderson, who runs his nonprofit Shepherd's Hope there. Uh, There's a little snippet of what he said about why he bought the building a few years ago. It was $55,000.
1: The Lord wanted us to have this building. So that's the reason we're here.
0: So if you didn't hear that, he said the Lord wanted us to have this building. That's why we're here. Nader, it serves, that center that he started, it serves 6,000 folks a week. So just tell us a bit more about Anderson's nonprofit and how he was able to just turn that building into this bustling community center.
1: Yeah, you walk through it, and and it, it feels like you're walking through a school. This isn't one of those buildings that underwent a massive renovation or has all these new bells and whistles. It it really does feel like a school. You still see the lockers. They have a daycare in the back where they use some of the old lockers from the Mays Elementary School. You walk into the cafeteria and there's lunch ladies telling you what's for lunch mm. because people are coming in. Uh, to, to eat hot meals and um, he, the center serving serving community residents and, interestingly enough, serving alumni of, of the school. And, yeah, you walk through and it, it just feels like a school. It, it, it feels almost like you were transported back to the 80s and all of the color schemes. Um, and, and you walk in, people do appreciate the mental health services, the health clinic, they run a basketball clinic um teach kids basketball there are church services wow there's just a wide variety of things going so on in the building yeah, yeah. and uh, it's it's one of the only i would say success stories we've seen across the city in these buildings where it really accomplished what people wanted to see which was a building that people can still come to a hub like Lauren was talking about an anchor that people can come to and still benefit in their community.
0: Well, we got a question from a caller. Uh, TJ from West Humboldt Park is wondering if any of you folks can talk about what happened to the schools closed around Humboldt Park. Anyone remember that?
2: Well, the biggest school, Lafayette, is um, now Shy Arts. Um, So that's that's, that's renovated. But then... De Diego is around there, but that's that's just vacant, right? That is in the process of becoming
4: some kind of housing, but I think that process has sort of just finally um, gotten underway. I see. That school had a little annex, too, and that was converted a couple of years ago into um uh, sort of preschool, daycare for uh, children in the neighborhood. Hmm, good to know.
0: Hey, Kate, I mean, when it comes to the current conditions of these buildings, all the things that we've been talking about, how much responsibility have city and, and school leaders taken?
3: Um, well, so as I was saying before, they, they are responsible for a sort of basic upkeep, the grass, the boarding up, um, that kind of thing. So there are 16 properties that are still owned by either CPS or the city. Yeah. The, the real issue um, that the reporters discovered was that there's 10 properties that are sold but haven't been redeveloped yet. Um, some are close to being done. Many of them, there's like nothing happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but CPS is out of the picture, and in a lot of them, there's, n- there's nobody taking care of the property. And those, um, from what, what they've shared, was they were, those are in the worst condition. Oh, they were by far in the worst yeah. condition. We
4: pulled up to a couple of them. One was Songhai on the far south side. Yeah. And then Yale in Englewood, which had been purchased by the same development company. And we couldn't believe how, I mean, the weeds were up to my chest and there my was goodness. just trash everywhere.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, before you we take a pause, Sarah, I'm curious because c- current CPS CEO Pedro Martinez Blame the pandemic for redevelopment delays. And he says that he's looking forward to working with Mayor Brandon Johnson on, you know, continuing. So any idea what Mayor Johnson has in mind for these buildings we're talking about?
2: Not really, not specifically. I mean, he he has talked about a little bit about what he thinks should be done to the for the current underutilized buildings, but not really about the, the vacant schools, just just left behind from from these closings. So hopefully we will get that an answer from him. Um, as a so much on his plate unfolds. already. We will, we will, <laughs> Week we're two definitely on the job. To, yeah, we'll be asking him. So
0: for sure. Sarah Karp and Kate Grossman from WBEZ and Nader Issa and Lauren Fitzpatrick of the Chicago Sun-Times they are going to stick around to talk more about the 10 year anniversary of 50 Chicago public schools being closed. And we're back now with more Reset. I'm your host, Sasha Ann Simons. We're continuing our conversation about what's happened in the 10 years since Chicago closed 50 public schools. At the time, city and school leaders turned what was a facility's dilemma into a push for school reform and neighborhood development. So did city officials keep their promises? And what lies ahead for the school district? Still with us is the team behind a new series looking into the mass closings. WBEZ education reporter Sarah Karp Sometimes investigative reporter Lauren Fitzpatrick, sometimes education reporter Nader Issa, and Kate Grossman, WBEZ's senior editor for education. We also want to hear from you. How do you want city and school leaders to address the long-term consequences of the mass school closings? Our number is 866-915-WBEZ. So, folks, I want to review the three core promises. We keep saying, did the city live up to its promises? Now, here's what the promises were. Number one students would be better off after their schools were closed. Number two, their new schools would be transformed. And number three, former school buildings would be reborn as community assets. So I'm looking at you folks on a scale of one to 10. How well did city and school leaders keep their promises? Kate, you first.
3: Um, Well, I'll I'll give you a number, and it's not good. (laughs) (laughs) But I will just say... Um, you know, one of the big issues I was rereading. I was on the editorial board at the Sun Times when this happened, and the one thing that they did not too bad was just sort of the the basics, which was collect, close down the schools, and move the kids to other schools. There were it was often very chaotic, and there were lots of tr- problems. Mm-hmm. But they actually did a little like the bar was very low. They actually did a little bit better than expected in terms of just the sort of Orchestrating, you know, yeah, getting fit, them from one know, to the other, rent the other. So uh, I want to just give them a little credit for that. I hired a former marine to kind of oversee the furniture, the buildings, the, all that. Okay, but in terms of the promises,
0: what's the grade? W- one. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> Lauren, is that higher than you would have? It is not. Okay,
4: <laughs> it is not higher yeah. than I would have gone either. Based on the buildings alone which is where I spent the most time reporting. I mean, I was shocked to learn just how very many of these buildings still are not useful in any possible way to the people around them. Mm.
0: Nader?
1: Well, one, if that's the lowest you can go, and I think an important thing to note here, too, is we sort of discovered in this reporting, to be able to keep a promise, you have to track whether or not you're keeping it, and nothing has been tracked. We we had questions that sort of go unanswered about buildings, Mm -hmm. about kids, about communities, about the welcoming schools. I mean, there are officials in CPS who don't even know what the term welcoming school is 10 years later. And so it just wasn't something that stayed in the system's collective memory.
0: Very good points. On a scale of 1 to 10, Sarah, where where does this land?
2: But what I want to say, there is this... um Sharita Covington, who we we, um, played her her cut here, when when we were talking to her, she was talking about her school. She didn't go to a closed school, but um, a school that was threatened with closing. And she said, "Um, we were on level zero, (laughs) (laughs) which it was – and I sort of think about maybe that's the – that's where they they sort of landed Um, because –
0: they, so you're giving this a, a zero out of ten?
2: Well, is that a is that a I
0: don't know if there's I mean, a level zero.
2: There. I mean, <laughs> there's a zero, but but one thing I will say is like you know they did you know people kids did move and there are some examples of you know uh, buildings being reused for good purposes. So that's that's something. Mm-hmm. And um, I did talk to one official who is squarely against school closings, but they do say that you know if today facing what we are facing, which was under which is underutilized buildings, which can be debated, mm-hmm. but we, we have way fewer kids, you know, an acceleration of declining enrollment over the last 10 years. If today we were looking at a situation where we had 50 more schools on the books, mm-hmm. that, would, that would probably make it harder to, to figure out our next steps.
0: Well, tell me this, Sarah, because another question that you, you sought to answer in this series was whether these mass closings saved any money. Did it?
2: I mean, it probably did. Okay, it probably did. I mean, I, we we have to be honest about that. That that there was money, you know. You, there's there's less principals, less assistant principals. You don't need an assistant principal, you know. You you don't need as many clerks. Um, you know, there are things you don't need to heat buildings. You don't need to air condition buildings. Now, the fact that the school system was unable to offload a lot of these buildings means that some of those savings have been you know, cut into severely because they're still sending somebody around there to cut the lawn. They're still sending someone around there to, mm. you know, do some stuff to board, reboard up the buildings and reboard up the buildings. So um, so but, the, the savings aren't as clear. Um, and as I said at the, at the beginning, the costs. Yeah. Might outweigh those.
0: Well, Lauren, I know you have you want to say something. Let's hear from uh, CPS CEO Pedro Martinez, because he weighed in on this savings conversation, too. And then I'll get your thoughts on the back end.
1: I strongly believe that the costs of of closing schools in terms of the lost trust, uh, the challenges, you know, dealing with with the facilities and, and moving children. I think for the most part have, you know, in my experience in the last 20 years, outweigh any benefits you get from it
0: does he have a point
4: he has acknowledged um these non-tangible costs that come when you shut down a community institution how it makes people feel other decisions people decide to make with their lives and i in my memory he is one of the first um high up city officials to to make that acknowledgement yeah i think the other thing i wanted to say about cost is that did CPS save money in its budget on its books? Maybe. However, if you are a taxpayer in the city of Chicago, you paid for these buildings in so many other ways. You paid for tax credits to do some of the redevelopment. You paid for a beautiful renovation of the Pope Elementary School in Douglas Park to become a CHA facility where housing applicants can go and get help. It's gorgeous. Mm. So far, they've spent 18.5 million dollars there. So we as taxpayers have given out lots of other kinds of incentives Mm -hmm. and um, and all to help these buildings become something more useful or at least less dangerous. And that is not something that city leaders talked about a decade ago, that that would be part of this collective um, part of this collective.
0: Well, Nader, let's let's keep talking money here. CPS is approaching a six hundred twenty eight million dollar deficit. I know one of the main problems here is this uh, shortage of state education funding. How likely is it that the district will get more state funding? Walk us through that.
1: Leaders have been talking forever about getting more education funding. it's It's not new in Chicago. It's not new in other major urban districts around the country. You would think maybe now with a mayor, Brandon Johnson, who is very focused on traditional public schools on his whole platform that he ran on with schools was to fully fund schools. And you need money, more money than they have to do that. Mm -hmm. You would think uh, he and maybe a a Democratic-led legislature, Governor Pritzker, who has tried to put more money into education, you would think now might be the time to work on that. And it. Um, we sort of laughed a little bit. It was it was funny to see Pedro Martinez, the CPS CEO, and Stacey Davis Gates, the Chicago Teachers Union president, went down to Springfield together a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. A- and, I mean, compared to the relationship between CTU and CPS with the 2019 strike, over the past decade since the closings, all of the school reopening negotiations, it seems like finally they might be coming together to address this existential issue, which is there is a nearly $630 million deficit staring CPS in the face in two years. And yeah. you're going to have to make some big decisions if you don't get money to to fill that hole.
0: We have covered a lot of ground this hour, Kate. Anything else that stands out to you in this research that folks should know about?
3: Um, well, I do want to share something that Lauren reminded us during the break that we did reach out to Rahm Emanuel to to see if he had a comment, and Barbara Bird Bennett, who was the CEO at the time, to give them an opportunity to you know to talk about these promises, yeah. and, and and we didn't hear back from them. So just just wanted to share that. Um, I think just I just think the enormity of it. I mean, it was so huge at the time, mm-hmm. and as often big news stories, then it it kind of. After the school started in the fall, we did a lot of coverage. You know, I was at you know Ellington Elementary School on the first day, mm-hmm. and it was you know chaotic and crazy. And but then things get quiet. Yeah. And so I think that's you know to be able to go and see the enormity continued, but not in protests and but you know in in small and profound ways. You know, at Henson School, at the kid who went to a welcoming school and then transferred three more times afterwards. You know, yeah. just that um, this huge eruption, mm-hmm. then you know, slowly trickled through the city and all these neighborhoods for the last ten years, and I think that's yeah, it's not something that's I've just been thinking about a lot as we've been doing this project. And you've been you're going to publish some more stories in the weeks ahead. We
0: can't wait for those. They're all up on wbez.org. Would you believe that we are out of time? We've been talking with WBEZ education reporter Sarah Karp, Chicago Sun-Times investigative reporter Lauren Fitzpatrick, Chicago Sun-Times education reporter Nader Issa, and Kate Grossman, WBEZ senior editor, senior editor rather for education. Check out their new series on the 10-year 10, 10 anniversary of 50 closed Chicago public schools. It's up on our website right now on the homepage, wbez.org. Great work, all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.